Good morning again. Let me make a shameless plug here. If you're looking for somewhere to offload your riches to get tax breaks, we have a missions program here where we support primarily planting works in Europe, hardened, darkened Europe, once the center of, well, the Christian world in some sense, but has since grown dim. And so works there are so important to spread the gospel. Uh, In our area, we support college ministries primarily and ministries to students. And if you've sent a child off to college, you realize how significant that is. And if you want to hear a testimony of that, see me. But if you have questions about that, how we do it, how we raise the support for that and distribute, please feel free to see me. But I highly encourage participation, if not with us, someone, somewhere. This morning we're reading what has been described as one of the most profound statements in the written word. We're only going to read part of it, and I encourage you to go look and study that. Let me kind of introduce it with this. Being in person makes all the difference in the world. In person makes a huge difference. I'll give you an example. When we moved to Corinth, Mississippi, our first home was a split level. So we basically had three tiers. Now, don't get excited. It was a teeny house. It just had three tiers. Uh, Usually, our children would be down in the basement where it was carpeted, kind of a play area, den area, and Leanne and I would be upstairs, and inevitably, there'd be a scenario like this. Leanne would be in the kitchen, the girls would be downstairs, and then you begin to hear conflict, noises, uh, roughhousing. One, inevitably, usually the youngest, since she was the most vulnerable to attack, would come upstairs and report to mom what the other two were doing. And so mom would turn and report to her, go tell them, I said, stop. So the young one would go downstairs under the authority of mom and say, mom said, stop. Did they stop? No. After a while, it continued, and you would hear from the top a voice coming down, y'all stop. Did they stop? No. After a while, inevitably, it would end up where either I or my wife would descend the stairs into the presence of the children that they could physically see us in all of our authority, telling them, stop. Guess what? They stopped. Of course, until we got out of their sight. But the point of it is... In person makes a huge difference. And if you're not convinced of that, think about just this year, this season, where we haven't had the opportunity in most cases to be with other people. And that's done a number on us. It does a number on who we are. We've had three families who have lost loved ones while they were in the hospital that they could not visit. They had to sit at home and wait. That is a dark memory for them. And then we've had funerals where it's been graveside and instead of hugs, it's been fist pumps at best. 
And of course, if you read the statistics, our, our children are wrestling with levels of depression, despair, addiction, suicide at levels that are unprecedented. Why? Because they're stuck. They can't be with people. You could say to not be in the presence of other people makes us less human. Here's the point. Presence makes all the difference. Being present makes all the difference. I think that's what John's going for here. Because he is inserting into the human story, God comes down the stairs. And He's present. And it makes all the difference. Let me just read what we have printed. It's only parts. I encourage you to go back and read this wonderful called the prologue of John. But we're going to read verses 1 to 5. And then the verse we'll focus on this morning. See what this sounds like if you've heard this in the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, this is, um, if true, the thing that rattles the world. And our lives, which are part of that. This, if true, Lord, is the shaking moment of history where the orbit shifts from us to You. And we do believe it's true. And there's plenty of testimony, Lord, of how Your presence has made all the difference. But Lord, we come this morning asking for a greater sense of that. Maybe a reconnection with that. Maybe for the first time, Lord, having light come into our lives. That's a miracle that my words can't affect. And all of our energies can't uh, bring to fruit. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a survey this week, and you have to be careful with surveys. They don't always tell the whole truth, but they tell something of the truth. You get some sense. Here was the survey. Most Americans, and we're talking in the 70s percentile in this survey, most Americans ages 18 to 29 say that their religious affiliation is none. 70 plus percent, none. Now, we grimace at that. We have to remember, of course, well, why do you believe? It's not a matter of intelligence or a matter of I've just, you know, developed wisdom or a matter of my family or generation. It's because of a miracle that you've been brought to life. But it's an interesting statistic. One of the girls quoted 
very honest, and I appreciate this about younger generations. They're kind of tired of, you know, playing the games. There are so many religions, so many beliefs. Who can know? And who can say they are right? So I don't really care. She's not an atheist. That's easy. That's someone that's given thought and made a, a declaration. I see the evidence. I don't believe it. That's an atheist. Then there's the agnostic who says there must be something, but we can't really know. But this one goes a step farther. It's kind of a new take on atheism or agnosticism. It's apatheism. There may be something. I could care less. That would be a, a, a rather hopeless place to be. I, I, I would suggest to you having wrestled with issues of faith, it's actually it's cowardly and lazy. Because Christ, as John just read, makes phenomenal claims that anyone interested in truth and understanding would have to at least explore. I challenge you toward that. Here's surveys of what's inside the church though 52% these are evangelical christians in america that means they opened the bible that's evangelical 52% surveyed believe jesus was a good man but he was not god and among those evangelicals 30% believe that religious truth is simply a matter of personal preference. We get that. Who's to, I was born in Mississippi. Of course you're a Christian. Or you're born in Saudi Arabia. Of course you're a Muslim. 42% believe all religions worship essentially the same God, just with different names. Now I say all that because I want you to get a grasp of the audience to whom John writes this gospel. John was not born a Christian. He did not grow up a Christian. He became one. He met Jesus. And that presence made all the difference. Now he's turning to his society, which is in many ways like ours, but I would say probably more intense because they were a world that had not been affected by even the uh, the waves of Christian influence through the generations like we have. They didn't have the same laws or the same principles or the same values that have been shaped whether you believe in Jesus or not. He didn't grow up like that. And the world he's writing to wasn't happy Christian people. He lived in a world very similar to ours, very diverse, multiplicities of races and creeds and religions all kind of conflating together. It was a world of violence and hatred and war that if you think ours is tough, study history. Abortion was post-birth, not pre-birth. And it was not only acceptable, endorsed, depending on the sex of the child, Politics were vicious. Assassinations were constant. Uh, it was more than talk and social media. The sexual dysfunction, if you read about it, is insane in the ancient world. We would blush even with our disorders. 
disease, death, and of course, doubt. John's writing to a world that is in search of something, just like we are. And we do that because, like he mentions in the beginning, we were actually created to do that. We're meaning makers. The reason we send our children off to study science is that they learn to discover the things that can't be discovered. That's in us. Or math. We study math because it's a way to learn how to simplify what is complex. Men, of course, invent religion as part of that because they're trying to bridge an innate knowledge between my existence here and what must be up. There's got to be something. There's a, there's a hidden shadow mystery inside of me. I can't quite figure out what it is. That's what John's writing to. We're, we're meaning makers. And here's what, here's what John's trying to say. You and I have to know what is true, but we will never know in and of ourselves. We are amazing creatures. Amazing what humans are and can do, but we're limited. And even if we were to know God and that there is a God, we also have the tendency to make Him into what we need Him to be. If you've had a great life, He's probably going to be a grandpa. If you've had a crummy life, God's probably going to be cruel. He will be to us either a weapon we wield. We see that every day in our country. God is a weapon to wield. Or He'll be a lucky charm. I'm giving you that picture because John is essentially inserting into the story of humanity a different narrative. Basically, the way humans have thought is, well, Plato and Aristotle, and after that, just a footnote. Plato said everything that's true and that really matters is up there. Humans can't grab it and touch it. We're shadows of what's true. Aristotle comes along and he says, nope, just the opposite. Everything that's real and true is here. That's probably where our society falls right now. What I can grab, touch, taste, that's what's true. That's what's real. And then if you study the history of thought, well, it's a constant battle between the two. One generation says everything's up there, the next says everything's down here, and the battle begins. John presents to us a story that bridges both. And it is unique in its presentation of all of the world's faiths and philosophies and belief systems which we all have. He's saying there's something unique about Christianity. God is indeed transcendent, glorious, and yet imminent. You can touch Him. He came. That's what His word here is about. So in a sense, He's laying out a resume for Jesus. He's saying, this is why I came to believe in Him, and I'm encouraging you, as He says in the end of His book, that you would believe in Him too. That you would follow Him, and it's not without reason. So He gives these words, and it's verse 14. It's a great summary. That'll be our focus this morning. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that's the Christmas story. That is Christmas. 
that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So let's take the points as they come in that verse. First, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's the Word? In some of our English translations, you'll see it with a capital W. The word used there is the same word that we get logic from, logos. To the ancient Greeks, the logos was kind of that, that thing that bridged the mysteries of what no one can know with our experience. There's got to be something tying things together. There's got to be something that makes sense of the world. There's got to be something that answers the questions we, we haven't even learned to ask yet. That's what they called the logos. If you pay attention to television, it's still around. It's huge on Disney. I hear it all the time, but you'll see it in other shows too. Someone will say something like this. You know, they'll miss out on a romantic interaction. They'll say, well, the universe must not want us together. Or the universe is telling me something. Have you heard that on television? All right, that's our version of the Logos. It's a way to try to bridge what is unknowable. It's trying to make sense, but it's an impersonal principle. And what John does is he takes that concept that those people would have believed and said, I'm going to tell you about the universe, or if you're a Star Wars fan, the Force. It became flesh and dwelt among God. He takes it from being this impersonal, unknowable, mysterious entity, an idea, and he says, here's the Christian version of this. That word, that thing you don't know, is a person. It's personal. God has done the unthinkable. The thing that Plato nor Aristotle could have dreamed that you could bridge heaven and earth. He's done it. The glories of what's up there with the grit of what's down here. All in this person. You remember Paul when he went to Athens. They had so many gods in Athens. Just like us. We don't erect statues to money and food and sex. But we know those are things we worship. They bring us security and comfort and joy. Well, they had physical gods that met all those needs. And you go into a city like Athens and you see statues just replete all over the place. Everyone's got their own God. Personal home gods, city gods, country gods, whatever the case may be. But there was one in Athens, interestingly. A statue erected with an inscription that said, To the unknown God. And I think that gets at the heart of it. It's like we know there's something else, but we don't know what it is. And what John is doing is he's owning that idea and saying, it is knowable. The Word has become flesh. And the beauty is is that the Word becoming flesh reveals to us not only that there is a God, but what He's like. Oh, there are so many versions of what God must be like. You hear it all the time. Cruel, judgmental, angry unreachable. He sits aloft without care or concern. We, we make him all sorts of things. Or the opposite of it. He's, you know, he's a good guy that helps people in pinches. He's a social justice warrior. 
He's an economic redistribution principle. Name it. We make G- he's, he's, he's a platform of a political party. And what John says here is that he's made him known. If you want to know what God's like, he's like Jesus. He's always been like Jesus. He wasn't angry and then became nice. He's always been like Jesus. But that word, he says, became flesh. That is, if you ever wonder what makes Christianity unique among all of the claims of the world's faiths and philosophies, that's it right there. God has become flesh. That's what separates or makes us distinct. We're either right or we're completely wrong, but we're not in between. But what it means that Jesus became flesh is that God has become relatable. God has become someone that knows what we are like. He doesn't, like the Greek gods, sit aloft the mountains, drinking and eating themselves into oblivion with periodic visits to earth to indulge their desires. Now he's saying here, here is one that knows the experience of every human because he's tasted it. He's not a God that's aloof. But that also means he's become vulnerable. And I'll add a word to that. Killable. And what you see in this moment is that the word became flesh is this amazing lesson in what is required for man to find that answer to that unknown God, the thing that nags at all of us. He's bridging us with who we were created to be connected to. And what he says is this, salvation requires that if there's to be salvation, it's not in our hands, it's in His. But the only way those two connect is that that Savior, whoever that may be, must be God and man. He must be transcendent and glorious and holy and perfect, and yet he must also be credible and true. He he must be God because only someone free of sin could possibly, legitimately, credibly forgive another sin or take that sin upon them. If Jesus were just man but not God, it would be something like this. I could tell you, you are forgiven. Me. But that would be like me writing a check without any money in the bank. Which, by the way, if you listen to Jeff Foxworthy, is an amazing gift that we have. You know, the repo man shows up and says, I'm here to get the TV you bought. And Jeff Foxworthy says, I don't have any money. Well, I'm going to have to take the TV. And they go back and forth for a while. And finally, the, the repo man says, well, have you got a check? A check? <laughs> yeah, I've got a check. I'll write you a check. Write him a check. There's no money in the bank. I'll send you a check all day. What John says is that Jesus comes to write a check, but the count is full. He can do what He says because He's God. But He's also man. He's required to be man. Because salvation requires an experience that is real. To say someone is free of sin without testing it, without proving its credibility, 
without someone who experiences real gut-wrenching temptation and longing and pain and suffering, well, it's like a man teaching a childbirth class. He can give you facts all day, but there's a part of you that should be reserved when he starts telling you what it's really like. Jesus was both God and man for that point. And then here's a miracle. It says the Word became flesh and dwelt. Dwelt. Now, you've heard this before probably. John uses a very particular word. Not a word normally used for dwelling. There are lots of words to describe taking up residence and living, but he chooses one right out of the Greek Old Testament, plops it in here. And the word, if you translate it, would be something strange. He takes a noun and he makes it a verb. He says he tabernacled. Tabernacled. My English teacher would shudder at that. You can't take a noun and just make it a verb. But he does. And he's pointing the people to this image of the story of God with his people. And of course, God wanted to make himself present with his people, but he's too holy. Even Moses was told, do not look at me, but... God creates a way through a tabernacle, a tent, a place of worship where He said, that's where my presence will be. But He's separated by thick, dark curtains because even Moses, with all of his gentleness and righteousness and obedience, would be evaporated, beholding purity in its purest form, and truth in its truest form, and glory in its most glorious form. We, we can't conceive of that. So God protects them. He's present with them, but He's not fully accessible. And here's what John is saying. God has come and tabernacled, and the curtain is gone, and it's got a face with skin. And we behold it, He says, the glory that Moses would have been evaporated by staring at. Only the offended person in a crime can offer forgiveness. Only the one who's offended can say, we're okay again. For us to come to God and say, you know, I'm sorry. That does not bridge the gap. It requires the presence of God dwelling amongst His people. And that's what John is saying. The gap has been closed. The alienation, the wandering, the ever-extending mystery of what it's like to wander east of Eden, closed. And then it says something amazing. And I like how John includes himself in this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I almost want to insert a question mark there. Because there should be a bit of surprise. If all that he said is true, that should be the one thing that rips the imagination out of its complacency and says, God became flesh and he dwelt among us? Me? Do you know me? Do you know what's in my heart? Do you know what I cover up with my own tent, my own flesh? 
Here is God coming into the presence of sinners. The lost. The drifting. The dull. The hardened. Those who are overwhelmed. He he finds us where we are. He doesn't wait for a person to clean themselves up before he enters. Because all of the scrubbing in the world of one's soul will not impress the righteousness of God. So be stunned by the miracle He came among us. And the beauty of that's not only dealing with sin, but you understand as the Scriptures unfold that, that means something for us. How many funerals I go to and the people cry with tears and the only hope that they have in any of those situations is to know and to quote Dorothy Sayers, here's at least a God who took His own medicine. Here's a God who didn't let Himself off the hook. Whatever pain and grief and misery you and I encounter, at least He had the courage to do that too. That's what he's dealing with here. Here's here's someone who grew up with parents and he knew their expectations and he had to do chores. And here's one who knows what it's like to lose something that you love and to miss out on sleep and to wrestle with chronic pain. And here's one who knows what it's like to be talked about and to be maligned wrongly and to be criticized and slandered and griped at. Jesus tasted all of that just like you do. He knows what it's like to not get your way. He knows what it's like to live under terrible leaders. He knows what it's like even to pay taxes and to work long hours. The point is, John's saying, you have a sympathetic Savior. One who knows what you deal with. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. One of my favorite stories from history was uh, kind of one of those underdog stories. So Peter the Great was the Tsar of Russia. And Russia always had a lust for land and expansion. And Peter, you know, by the way, in history, when you get the title, the Great, what that means? It means you've killed a million people or more. Oh, he's great. They're usually horrible people, but he's great in the world's sense of that. And so Peter the Great is expanding his influence. And then there's this obscure king, Charles Twelfth in Sweden, who came to the throne rather young. And he would actually lead his soldiers into battle. And there was a battle they fought in what today I think is Estonia called the Battle of Narva in 1700. And the story goes that the soldiers were having to wade through and trudge through like the worst weather. Like all of a sudden the snow and the rain and you can imagine the mud and the wagons being stuck. I don't know, the uniforms that are drenched with mud and snow just must have weighed a hundred pounds and miserable. And on the day of the battle, it was a custom for kings, of course, if they were present, to stay in their tents up on the hill. They'd kind of played, the, they had given the strategy to the generals as if they were playing chess. But they, of course, because their kings could not 
dare enter the battlefield. There's a line in a biography of Peter the Great that says this about Charles Twelfth. He went down onto the battlefield with his men receiving both the rain and the wind in his face. And what that did for his men was it rallied them to defeat Peter the Great. The king had come down into the lives of his men. And that made all the difference in the world. So here we are at Christmas again. With all of the warmth of the season, but we're pondering something that at least John says, this is the most amazing philosophical an existential reality that you could possibly behold. And I want you to taste it and to touch it and to know it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You that You did dwell among us and by Your Spirit continue to do so. We thank You, Lord, that You came to confront our truest problem. We could list a million, but Lord, You came to deal with the biggie. And what's amazing is that you, Lord, because you were so credible and because you were so faithful, you were able to take our junk and give to us your treasure. And though, Lord, we will continue to wrestle and battle and even fail with faithfulness to you, we're secure because you've come and you've dwelt among us. You know us. And You're with us. And so we pray, Lord, that You would come downstairs into our life. That we could see You face to face. And we pray this kindness in Your name. Amen.